I would like to dedicate this year in memory of uh, Rabbi Israel ben uh, Yoshua Heschel, um, Israel Kaufman, otherwise known as Izzy. Um, I was Zohar to know him. He was a Holocaust survivor. Um, he was one of those survivors who did not talk a lot. He didn't like to talk about his experiences. I told you that story before. Um, but I remember on a particular Pesach, um, he was on a Pesach program in Florida, and I happened to be one of the rabbis in the Pesach program. And because I'm close with his daughter and his son-in-law, so, you know, obviously I, I knew him already. And for some reason, it, 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 I think uh, after a meal, and one of the Yom Tovim, I went over to their table, he was sitting with his wife, and just to talk to them. And I knew that there was some story, you know, that he had with Pesach. I, I didn't know exactly what it was. So I said to him, you know, I know Pesach is not simple for you. I understand that it was a difficult time. We're in the middle of a hotel and the Pesach program is happening. He starts crying. He starts crying. And I, you know, I, I felt terrible. Like, well, you want to make a person cry and, and yonder. And uh, it, was like, it was like you opened the faucet. And the spigot, it just came out. And he started telling me part of his story. And the reason Pesach was difficult for him was because the Nazis, Yemach Shemam, they knew the Jewish calendar. And they would make it a point to do terrible things to us, Dafka on the holidays. In the camps, they did selections on the Yemen Tovin. And they burst into their home. I think it was already their home in the ghetto. And they were, taking, they were taken to Trishnishtag, to the, to the camps, on the night of Pesach. Right? A little Seder. You know, we... One of the things that, that we keep learning again and again, some of us know this, some of us don't, but, but if anything taught us this, at least in your lifetime, it was October 7th. You know, you wake up in the morning, Simchas Torah. We're standing here, we're, we're, we're getting ready to do our kafos. And last night we were dancing, it was unbelievable. And the only question that's going through my head is, what nigunim should we start with? And we have no idea that the world has changed. The entire world is a different world, we just have no idea. And that generation, what they went through, they saw their entire world completely turned upside down. Not even upside down. You could recognize things upside down. Just smashed. And yet, they somehow navigated through that. They never lost their emunah. And his daughter told me that he, or one of his, his granddaughter, I think, said that he always would say that what kept him going was he always knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel. He believed they would survive. Um, he, most of the people in the camps died from dysentery. Because they ate food. They, 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 it wasn't real food. It was like disgusting food. They, they, they would give them something called ersatz, which is supposed to resemble coffee, but it was, you know, it was the stuff you, you, you would flush the toilet it stank. In fact, uh, you met Rena Quint. And maybe she mentioned to you that time that she was in the restaurant with her daughter, and there was a chifetz chashud in front of the restaurant, and she, they couldn't go out the front. But she had to get to an appointment. She was with her granddaughter, so they said you could go out the back to the kitchen. And they went out the back to the kitchen and they came to the loading dock. And the loading dock in a restaurant is disgusting. It's a sour smell. And she said all of a sudden, oh my God, that's what our food smelled like. And her granddaughter didn't understand her right away. And she suddenly understood that this is what they ate. So everybody got sick. So you saw Izzy Kaufman, he understood that if you ate, you got sick. So he didn't eat. He would occasionally find a potato or something. Somehow he managed to survive. Because he didn't eat, he didn't get sick. The, the, the young had their wits about them. So that generation, 
and the, the strength that they had and the inspiration that they gave us and, and that they survived and they built Jewish families is, is just incredible to me. So we're going to dedicate this shear in his memory. So my wife's grandmother, Alea Shalom, also an amazing woman, Sonia Ribbenfeld, but she came from, she was born Sonia Sarah Epstein Halevi. And she came from the Epstein Halevi family, um, also known as the Ben Venishti Halevi family. And they have a family tree that dates all the way back before Rashi, to the period of the Gaonim. And the reason they took on the name Epstein was because when they were exiled from Spain, they wandered for some time. And eventually in the 1530s, they finally made their way to Germany. And, and you know, that's like a vignette in a story. We don't understand what that means. Like, to be forced to, in a wagon to, 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 to cross Europe as Jews when you're at the mercy of anybody who finds you. And finally, the city of Epstein said that they could stay. So out of gratitude, they took on the name Epstein. Vichil Michal Epstein was one of the Epstein Alevi clan, the Aruch HaShulchan. His son, the Torah Tmima, of Baruch HaLevi Epstein also was her great-uncle, right? Aruch HaShulchan was her great-great-grandfather. That's why my wife in our Yichud room gave, us, gave me as a Yichud, as a minag, when you have Yichud after the chuppah, that you give each other gifts, that's how you start your relationship, you know, to give. So I gave my wife a beautiful pair of earrings, but I won that one because she gave me an Aruch HaShulchan. And uh, eventually I realized if you get an Aruch HaShulchan in Yichud room, you should start going through the Aruch HaShulchan. I'm in Evan Aizer now, it's been a while, but... Uh, so one year, she was in uh, Germany, uh, they lived in Germany, and uh, she had a job. And she was the last of her family to get out. Because she had a job and she had connections, so she was able to support and get pretty much her whole family out of Germany. She was the last one there, it was 1938. And it was, I think, a couple months before Kristallnacht, uh, before it got really bad and everybody wanted to get out. And there was an SS officer, there was an SS officer who took a liking to her. She was a stunning girl with red hair and blue eyes. She looked Aryan. And she suddenly realized this could be real trouble. So she figured out how to get out. And she never wanted to go back. Most people who left by that time had nothing to do with Germans or with Austrians. But one year they got an invitation. It was the, I believe it was the 25th anniversary um, of, of when the Jews were expelled from their town. And they wanted to make restitution. It was the 1970s. And so they invited citizens that they knew of to come back for a ceremony. And, and you know, in Germany, to their credit, as much as you can ever do tshuva, the younger generation has tried to make amends. I, I, I give them credit. They're friends of Israel. I give them credit. So she didn't want to go, but she had, ne- she had not been back to the kever, to the grave of her mother, who died when she was very young of, I think, uh, diphtheria um, or typhus. So she wanted to go back and visit her mother's kever. So she accepted the invitation, they paid her air ticket, and she went. And they had been met some ceremony in one of the local transit camps to remember those who were killed. And then they had some free time, and so she wandered back into the town. And she wanted to see her old house. Now she grew up in this house. And her, her, her father grew up in this house. This was the Epstein Levy house in Epstein, right? Or whatever it was, I might be getting the names wrong. And um, she gets to the house. And on the side of the house, you could see there was a garden in the back. And there was a swing set. 
And she remembered this swing set because when she was a little girl, she used to swing on the swing set. That was her family home. And she looks in the set, she gets close, and she sees there's a woman with blonde hair. And she's pushing a blonde kid, German woman pushing an Aryan German kid on the swing. And it suddenly hit her. Now, nobody ever bought that house from them. Nobody ever paid her for that house. They took her family house. And she looked at this and she became so disgusted. She didn't want to stay in Germany another minute. She took her bags. She went to the airport. She got on the first plane she could take. And she went back to Israel. And she told her family, I will never go back to Germany again. Some things you can't make right. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because this is a fascinating detail in this week's Parsha. First of all, we're in Parshat Va'ira. Parshat Va'ira is an interesting question. Parshat Shemot, rise of anti-Semitism. Moshe Rabbeinu is sent down by Akash Baruch Hu, And he says, and he says, go to Paro. Hashem says, go to Paro. It's time to get out of Mitzrayim. Next week's Parsha, Parshat Bo, Makat Bechorot, in the middle of the night. And the next morning, the Jewish people get out and they leave Mitzrayim. So you got Shmot, the story of how we go down to Egypt, how it becomes a mess, now we get, how we're going to get out. Bo, they actually get out. What's Vaira? What is Vaira doing here? Anybody know how many out of the seven, out of the ten plagues are in Vaira? Seven. Why do I need seven plagues? Why do I need ten plagues? What is Vaira doing here? Why don't I have Shmot and then Bo? Why do I need Vaira? And if, interesting, but no. <laughs> but interesting, right? Why do I need Vaira? Seems like, and, and when I ask that question, there are really two questions there. The first question is, why does Parshat Vaira stop at the end of seven plagues? I don't have a parsha with all ten plagues. What, what's, what's the difference between the seventh and the eighth? The parsha is a very old tradition. It dates back to at least Shas, the Yerushalmi for sure. And, you know, many Mepharshim talk about the, the, the tradition. Some, there's an interesting debate. Some say this is a Takan of Ezra. Some say it goes back to Allah, Allah, Sinai. This is a big deal. Why do I stop after the seventh plague? Number one. Number two, why do I need seven plagues? For that matter, why do I need ten plagues? Right? Let me see. Okay? Um... Does anybody have a paper cup? You know, we don't need a paper cup. Does anybody know what this is? No, this is Mitzrayim. What's this? This is Yavashem. Why do I need ten plagues? You know, Kosh Baruch the Jews are here. You want to get them to here, pick them up and put them there. Oh, we got to go through the desert, and we got to get the Torah in 40 years. And if already you want to get plagues, now, what would you say, what would you say would be a reason that you got to do some plagues? Yeah? Pardon? To get power. That's an interesting question. Does power do tshuva? That's a very interesting question. Not only does power not do tshuva, who's the reason power doesn't do tshuva? Because I'm going to harden his heart. We're going to show him. I'm going to give him a plague. That's, by the way, a very difficult question. I'm going to give him a plague because he deserves it. Then I'm going to say, you want to let him out of Egypt. And then I'm going to not let him let him out of Egypt, so I'll give him another plague. 
What kind of what kind of system is that? First of all, how can you do that? What about free choice? And second of all, what's the point of doing that? And why is it a middle parsha? What's going on with this? Right? Why does Va'era end here? Now, by the way, if you look in uh, in Va'era and Periktet, okay, it says, okay, this is in Periktet Pasukir Aleph. They get to a point, okay? We have Dam, Tzfardea, Kinim, Arov, Dever. Five plagues. What's the sixth? Shechin. Shechin is an interesting plague. Shechin, they take dust from the furnaces, right? Okay? Um Hashem Moshe v'Laron, K'chul lechem melochof nechem piach kivshan. Uzarko Moshe ha-shamayim alayne paro. Go to the furnaces, take the dust, throw it into the heavens in front of Paro. Paro has to see this. Okay? And it'll be dust on all Eretz Mitzrayim. Okay? And, and then it'll cause all sorts of blisters and boils and a right? You guys have never, have never experienced anything remotely like this. I remember uh, we had to do a week of imunim of maneuvers tank maneuvers, and it took us to a place called <laughs> Nebi Musa. It's called Nebi Musa because the Druzim believe that that's the site of um, Moshe, or I think actually Yitro, his father, the father of Moshe, Yitro, he wasn't really the father, but okay, it's Druzim, give him a break, right? But, that, but, but I don't know where that kever is or what they think. What I know is that this was a major area for tanks doing maneuvers. Now, because there are tanks doing maneuvers there all the time, so the ground is not ground anymore. They call it in Hebrew pudra. It's like this, this dust. It's like this soft ground dirt that you step on it and it flies everywhere. And by the time you're there for a couple hours, you're covered in this stuff. Right? Now, thank God, we didn't have to sleep on the tanks. They had tents for us. So we thought, ah, oh, this is great. We're going to sleep in a tent on a bed. Except by the time you get to the tent, you're covered in dust. The beds are covered in dust. The tent is covered in dust. All your stuff is covered in dust. You're tefillin. You take them out, they get covered in dust. You're breathing in this dust. It's disgusting. There are no showers there. You're in Shetach. They don't waste time having showers. So you're just living with this. You feel like a grime ball. And I remember thinking then, this is what it must have been like. They couldn't escape it. It was like all over them. And, and, and we didn't get the boils. They got boils. Okay. So at this point... That the magician, you know, they're these like the Egyptian advisors. We could do this plague, we could do that plague. There's like a battle going on. So Hashem says, Moshe, here you do this. And Moshe's like, all right, you know what? Let's finish this. Bye. Right? They couldn't, because they're covered in these boils. They couldn't stand. They had these boils everywhere. Anybody ever get a really bad blister under your foot? Okay, so anybody in the army who's done any level of infantry eventually gets blisters. Unless you're really lucky and you have someone who knows how to deal with it. You learn how to deal with it. You learn how to get rid of a blister. You learn how to put stuff in your boots to prevent blister. You learn how to put a thread with a needle in the heat. and then You figure it out. But when you're starting out, you don't. So you get a blister under your foot. Now, what's a blister? It's a big deal. You know, it's not like you're being shot in But let me tell you something. A little blister when you have to go on a massage is unbelievable. One blister. Can you imagine? Their whole feet were covered in blisters. They couldn't stand. So they're done. So what is it about Shechim? What is this? 
Okay. In, at, in the next plague, which is the last plague in Parshat Vaira, is the plague of Barad. And in Barad, I guess we didn't have enough plagues yet. So now we're going to do another one. What happens in Barad that hasn't happened till now? Something very powerful happens in Barad. It's in Perek um, Tet Pasuk Chavzayin. This is unbelievable. You know? No, that's a different discussion. Maybe we'll get to that. Nope. So Paro sends to Moshe and Aaron. I made a mistake. Hashem HaTzadik ve'ani ve'ami HaRishayim. I'm a tzadik. God is the, is the righteous one and we're Rishayim. What is that? We are Rishayim. What does that sound like? Hakarat This is the first level of tshuva. Now, there would be harata except that Hashem doesn't want to have harata yet. So what's going on here? And I'll tell you something really interesting. Okay, um, if you look, how can I show you this? If you look at, you know what, you'll have to trust me. If you look at the end of Parshat Va'era, in every plague, well not in every plague, Hashem says, I'm going to bring a plague. Moshe has to go to Paro and he has to warn him. Paro doesn't listen and then the plague comes. Then you have a couple of plagues where he says, okay, he's not listening to warnings, let's just bring a couple of plagues. But then after three plagues, you think, okay, now it's a chazaka. So if I warn him there's a fourth, he's going to believe me. So we can do this again. And we go back and we warn him. And he doesn't listen. And we bring a plague. But then we bring a fourth and another one. So, warning in plague number one. No warning two and three. Warning in four. No warning in five and six. Now there should be a warning in number seven, which is what? Barad. But I'll tell you something that happens in Barad. It does not happen in any other plague, not before or after. You know that in the Torah we have parshiot, right? Uh, when you're reading a chumash, you'll see a pay. You know what I'm talking about? That signifies that there's a new paragraph, which is also a new topic, okay? So obviously the warning is in a parsha that's connected to the plague that you're about to warn from, except in this instance. The warning for Barad, for plague number seven, is in the previous parsha of Shechin. That doesn't make sense. You look in a Sefer Torah or look in a Koran Tanakh which lists them in the order of Parsha. You'll see this is true towards the end of Parsha Vaira. Why is that so? What is the connection between Barad and Shechin? Right? And then something even more interesting happens. Now we get to next week's Parsha. So in next week's Parsha we have, right? Right? We have um, Arbe. Choshech and Makat Bechorot. Now there's something unique that happens. First of all, why do we need all these plagues and what's going on here? How is this process leading to redemption? Second of all, there's something unique that happens in Makat Choshech. Anybody know? Well, she quotes the vendors, right? Pardon? Oh, well that's true. That's interesting. But you do find that referenced in other plagues. No, there's something interesting. They take their money back? Ah, remember this? This is a Rashi. Let me see if I can find this Rashi. Um, I think I... Did I bring this Rashi? I thought I brought this Rashi. Yes. Okay? It goes like this. Right? 
Vayichoshech hafela b'chol Eretz Mitzrayim. So there's darkness. This is really Pasha Post. I'm giving you the Torah for Vayira Enbo. If you didn't go away this shop, you next time, you're good. This is Perek Yud Pasuk Chaf Bet Chaf Gimel. So there is this Vayichoshech hafela b'chol Eretz Mitzrayim Shlosh Chemim. There's this unbelievable darkness. Right? The Mepharshim say, the Medrash says, it's not a darkness like you and I know. Anybody here go to um, the Blind Museum in Ashdod? Have you ever been there? Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the names for it is Choshech Ba'afela. I believe it comes from this puzzle. Okay. It's an amazing... If you've never been to this museum, I, I really highly recommend it. The idea is to, to, to try to experience, just for an hour, what it's like to be blind. So you go into this museum and it is pitch black. It is completely black. You can't see anything. And you get a tour guide who takes you around. And the tour guide is blind. So in our case, I went with my wife and two of our older kids, and this woman is blind, and she obviously, for her, it's like she's walking around the house because she's used to this, but we're, you know, bumping over things. And you go through all these experiences. You go to this, like, mini market, and you have to buy some vegetables, but how do you know what your money is, and how do you... You, you, start, you start to become aware of such a challenge, and this takes an hour. And I don't know about those of you who went through, but by, by half an hour, I'm, like, ready to get out. And you're really ready to get out. Like, you're, you're even, like, trying to say, like, okay, just keep it together, you can do this. And while you're feeling this, you're thinking, like, if you're blind, you never get out. This is unbelievable, right? And one of the interesting things that happens is when you finish this hour and you come out, you meet your tour guide. And she looks nothing like what you imagine her to look like. Because you have, you've built this image based on her voice. You know, I had this, you know, tall, beautiful, blind woman, and she's a short, squat, gazunter lady, right? <laughs> I thought she was like 35, she looked like 60. I, it was unbelievable. And you start to realize how much what we see impacts us, right? Okay. So this darkness was even worse than that. This darkness was so heavy, it was such a thick darkness that they couldn't move. They were stuck in their chairs, right? And the mentor says, because you know, Chazal, if you're going to have a nace, have a nace. You don't have a little nace, a big nace. So it was Choshech for all the mitzvahs. None of the Egyptians could see. But the Jews could see. So I always thought it'd be cool, you know, they, they, we have um, uh, night vision uh, equipment in the army. And one of them is the starlight systems and one of them is infrared systems, whatever. And so I thought it'd be cool to show up in the blind museum with one of these systems, but the woman is taking you around as blind, so she's not going to know. And you'll be like the superstar, you know? You're like, oh, I got it, right? Okay. So that's what it was like for the Jews. And it's right. I'm going to think about that. That's what it's like for the Jews in Mitzrayim. They had like night vision scopes. They could see what was going on. So listen to what Rashi says. So why does Kosh do this? Like, what's this all about, right? Lo ra'u ish atachiv, v'lo kamu ish mitachtav, shlosh jamim. Now you can't leave the Egyptians in the chairs for six days because they'll die. And we're going to do a nace for the Jews. We're not doing a nace for the Egyptians. Okay. But for three days, they couldn't get out of their chairs. It's not a medrash. Shot in the puzzle. They were fine. Okay. So Rashi says the following. The ode, Shechipsu, like Rashi says, um, one second. One second. Why does the Koshbaru bring the plague of darkness? Shayu be Israel bow to a door. So one opinion, Lignai, to get rid of the Rishayim. You know, all the Negev, you know, there's going to be a big Makat Choshech one day. And all these yo-yos who were yelling Palestine, 
sea and the, the river and the chvestish, you know, it's going to be, Palestine will be free from, what is it, the river to the sea? By the way, I agree with that. I think Palestine should be free. I just think it should be free of Palestinians. But okay. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble now. But okay, right? By the way, it already is free of Palestinians because there are no Palestinians. There's such things Palestinians. But okay. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Let's see what my, what my email looks like tomorrow morning. But okay. Right? So... So you get these people like, you know, Nebuch. I mean, Mamash Nebuch. They're wearing their kippot, you know, their head coverings, and they're out there with the Palestinians. Well, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I don't judge people. It's not my job to judge. But if it could be, there'll be a Makat Choshech, and they'll just disappear. That's the first day in Rashi. By now, you know, Palestine's waiting for you. You know, it's in the Mediterranean, six feet under. Go find it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then there's a second opinion. <laughs> We're on a roll, right? <laughs> then there's a second opinion. Here's the second opinion. The oath. By the way, if you want to, um, if you really want to enjoy, we're not going to do this now. Uh, the, 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 the Mizrahi talks about this. There, there's, there's a difference between Davar Acher and Ve'od. Davar Acher and Rashi means not quite happy with the first opinion, at least according to the Mizrahi. Two different opinions because something bothers Rashi. Ve'od means, no, no, no. These are, these are both true. He's not discounting one in order to... And he sees a medrash and another medrash. They're at odds with each other. He says, no, 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 these are both true. Okay. They're both ideas are important. Ve'od, she'chipsu Yisrael v'ra'u et klehem, u'kshiatsu v'ayu sh'olin mehen, v'ayu omrim e'in b'yadeinu klum, omer lo, ani re'itiv b'beitcha u'v'makom ploniu. The Jews realized that they could go into their houses and they could find all the valuables. And when they got out of Egypt and they wanted to get their valuables, right? So they would ask them, they said, oh, we don't have any money, you know, we're destroyed. They'd say, oh, really? So what was that bag I saw in your freezer? They'd be like, ah, 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 So they brought my kachoshech, so they could come in, and they could look around the houses, and they could find all the valuables. Now there are a number of interesting questions here. One of the questions is, you know, why didn't they take them? Why did they need choshech to go in there? Why didn't Kosh Baruch Hu say, okay, they're all going to freeze. You go in, get what you... In fact, why didn't Kosh Baruch Hu say, watch this. They'll do a, a magnetic mace and all the valuables are coming to the Jews' houses. Okay, right? And if already the Jews are in the houses and they see all the valuables, what's the obvious question here? Why don't they take them? What are they waiting for when trying to get them to try? What is that about? So I want to tell you a deep idea. This is a very deep idea. Okay? The answer to this is in the original discussion, the original promise that there will be a Yitziat Mitzrayim. Right? Hashem comes to Avram Avinu, Brit Ben Abtarim, the covenant. Right? Avram hears from God, from Hashem, you're going to have a son. You're 99 years old. What is, what is Avram's response to that? Anybody remember? Three words. And Avram said, well, that makes sense. I'm the only guy who believes in God. He's rewarding me. Okay. Fine. That's Emuna. Like, you're 99 years old. You hear a voice in your head. You believe Hashem is telling you that you're going to have a son. That's impossible. You're 99 years old. Your wife is 89. You know, Chazal, like I said before, they like n- miracles that are big. She's so old, she doesn't even have a uterus anymore, according to the Medrash. 
Like if it's going to be big, she can't have a child. No, she's going to have a baby. Unbelievable. And Avram says, okay, I get that. And then Hashem, Hashem says, and by the way, that child, I'm going to give you this land. And all of a sudden, Avram says to Kosh Hashem, how do I know I'm going to inherit this land? Like he's questioning God. Why is all of a sudden Hashem, Avram Avinu, the paragon of faith, in a world gone mad, full of pagan idolatry, and all of a sudden he's not sure. So Hashem says, oh, that's a good question. You know what? Here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to do something called the Brit Ben Abtarim, which literally means the covenant between the pieces. So what does he do? Take these animals, cut them in half, spread them out. The vultures are going to eat their bodies, and you're going to walk through. Woo! Okay. <laughs> that's a little weird. Right? Can you imagine Sarah comes and says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just cutting up a calf so I can walk through it while the vultures eat it. Why? Because Hashem says, okay, it's a little crazy, right? So Chazal talk about this. What are those tarim? Those are the, the exiles that we're going to go through, right? Each animal, the vultures are the nations of the world, they're going to come and destroy us and we're going to walk through. We shouldn't be here, right? We're going to walk through the pieces of Babylonia and Persia and Aramea and Assyria and the Byzantines and, 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 and the Crusades and the Spaniards and the Greeks. And all of them. Buy now and we're going to end up the other side. And, and the details of this covenant are fascinating. But one of them is, right, that Ger this embraced parakteva of Parashat Lachlachah. Your children, your offspring, will be strangers in a land that isn't theirs. And they will enslave them. And they will cause them great suffering. They'll throw their babies in the Nile and they'll beat them. 400 years, however, whatever that cheshben is. And what does it say then? And that nation that they will serve as part of this recipe, Dan Anochi. I will judge. And afterwards, they will come out with great wealth. So part of the original promise, you'll suffer, you'll be in Egypt, you'll get out with great wealth. Why do you need to get out with great wealth? And if you do need to get out with great wealth, why does Hashem just give it to us? So I want to tell you, the wealth of Egypt is not taken by the Jews allegorically in Makar Choshech because the whole point of that is not that the Jews should walk away wealthy. It's that justice should be done. The world has to understand that justice needs to be done. Truth needs to be served. And in order for truth to be served, two things has to happen. The first is, the Jews need to be paid wages. The wealth of the Egyptians, why are the Jews waiting till they get out of Egypt? They're coming to the Egyptians. They say, wait a second, we're getting out, but you owe us. You owe us for 200 years of slavery. You owe us wages. This is going on now, by the way, in America. Right? There's a whole movement. African Americans whose ancestors were enslaved, they're owed, 
they want reparations, they want wages, universities that were built on, on donations from slave owners, and how can you go to the university? And that's a legitimate question. What is the you know, statute of limitations on reparations? That's an interesting question. But justice needs to be done. This is the foundation of what Judaism brings to the world, that there will be din, that you get what you deserve. That's the first issue. The second issue is that the philosophy of Egypt has to die with the drowning of the Egyptians. Now, what is the philosophy of Egypt? The philosophy of Egypt is that the strong survive and the weak perish. That might makes right. And this has been the philosophy of those who would destroy us from time immemorial. You know who writes this in his book? Anybody know? <coughs> Hitler. I want to give you an interesting experiment. Don't do this in the base matters, please. Don't even do this during the year. It's a good thing to do, like, on a train without your keeper. You know? Maybe put a book cover on it. But I think it's important to know what our enemies say. Um, my son told me that they entered uh, whatever school and they found, you know, one of the many things that they were doing in Gaza the last few months. And they found, I mean, guns and cribs and bombs under uh, in UN bags. I mean, crazy. And one of the things they found were in, in a particular home, they found uh, paraphernalia to indicate that this was a Hamas terrorist, you know, or group. And they found an Arabic translation of Mein Kampf. Those animals are reading Mein Kampf. It's still a bestseller in the world. Now, I read through Mein Kampf once. I said, I got to read this. I want to understand what this is. And to be perfectly honest, half the book is mamash. It's just drivel. It's just ranting and raving. It's just, it's, you can't even follow it. But he has moments of clarity, Adolf Hitler. He wrote this while he was in prison for the first putsch, if you know the story. And he actually writes in there exactly what he thinks of the Jews. And he writes in there exactly why he's committed to the destruction of the Jews. Anybody know? This is fascinating. Hitler believed that Germany had been robbed, that they were an Aryan nation, that they were a powerful nation, and that the way of the world is supposed to be that the strong survive and the weak perish. You don't find a lot of three-legged lions out there. Because if you're a three-legged lion, they kill you and they eat you. So lions are strong because the weak perish. Right? That's the way it works. You don't find a lot of weak trees because when the trees get ill, they die. And then they burn in a forest fire and only the strong survive. And that's the world of nature. And Egypt lives by that motto. And Hitler could never forgive the Jews because you know who introduced the world to the idea that might doesn't necessarily make right? That right is right? That God makes right? That you don't get to decide what's right? That the weak have the same rights as the mighty? I'm Israel. That's what we brought into the world. And he could never forgive us for that. And he understood that to reestablish that foundation of, of, of you know, survival of the fittest, of the, of, the, of the underlying principle of Darwin, he had to get rid of the Jews. Because they were the ones who reminded the world that there's an objective morality. And so he wanted to destroy us. Now, who was the first progenitor of that, really, in the Torah? Is Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was stronger. They were mightier. They became mighty economically. Interestingly enough, through Yosef. And that's a part of the discussion we're not going to get to tonight. And um, so they had to be destroyed. But here's the, here's the catch-22. 
If you destroy the Egyptians, then even if the Jewish people are getting out, they've won the battle and lost the war. Because they've showed the world that the reason that they got out was because their God was mightier than the Egyptian God. So might still makes right. So it's not just that the makot have to make right, it's to teach the world that there is din, that there is justice. It's to teach the world that there's a higher power that runs the world. You know what the difference between Shechin and Barad is? Shechin, what do they do? The, the plague comes from the Kivshan, from the furnace. The furnace was the economic vehicle for wealth of Egypt. And if you look at the different plagues, Arbe, which is in next week's parasha, Arbe descro- destroys the other economic wealth of Egypt. Right? The Nile River was their god because it regularly overflowed. And the crops which grew were the wealth of Egypt. And when there was drought elsewhere, they had wealth. And so they were stronger than everybody else. They were mightier. They were wealthier. And so that's how they became a power. So step by step, Akash Baruch Hu destroys everything that represents Egyptian might. Barad, which is that transitional makkah, what happens if there are two things that happen in Barad? Right? The second thing that happens in Barad is that Barad is impossible. Fire and water mix, that's impossible. There's no logic to it. Like, what is paganism? What is pagan idolatry? Pagans worship nature. They worship the power of nature, the beauty of nature, the cruelty of nature. Nature is God. So the Nile River is the source in nature that brings them wealth, so they worship the God. And if the Nile River is not overflowing its banks, then they worship the bull. Nature rules. You know what Barad teaches the world? Nature doesn't rule. Nature is just a tool of a Baruch if a Kosh Baruch Hu wants it to be hot, it'll be hot. If he wants it to be cold, it'll be cold. Middle of January, there'll be a heat wave. You walk around with a short sleeve shirt. That's nuts. That's what we had a week ago. Hashem runs the world. And that's what Barad teaches us. And that's why the warning for Barad is in the Makkah of Shechin. Because Shechin teaches you that the economy is destroyed, that you're not the mightiest. But Barad, we're not done with Shechin. Barad is what teaches you that the entire economy is an illusion. That's not what gives you might. You had might because Kosh Baruch gave you might. You know what Hashem gave you might? So that you could enslave the Jews. You know why you enslaved the Jews? Because the Jews made a mistake and they sold Yosef. And the Jews needed to become the Jewish people because the world needed the Jewish people so you're going to enslave them. But you're still going to have to pay a price for that because there has to be din. And that's what this is about. And that's why Va'era is sandwiched in between Shemot and Bo. Because Shemot is, we go into exile, and we're going to get out one day. And Bo is, we're getting out. But Va'era is the process, Va'era is the process by which the world recognizes what it needs to recognize. Now I will tell you something interesting. Right? By the way, the second thing that happens is in Makat Dever. Right? You know? In, uh, sorry, in, in Makat uh, Barat is that Hashem tells, this is the Medrash and Rashi, we don't have time to show you the Pesukim, Hashem tells them that, you know, in, in, that, that the animals that are in the barns will be safe. And the animals that are outside will be destroyed. Now, this is Makkah number seven. This is the end, the completion of an entire natural order, like seven days and seven years of Shemitah. You don't have to be a genius to understand this is going to happen. I mean, blood came true, frogs came true, lice came through, like Yala. So what's a smart thing to do? Put your cattle in the barn. 
But Paro is caught in a delicious conundrum. If he puts the cattle in the barn, then he's admitting he hasn't really ruled the world. Shem rules the world. So he has to leave his cattle out, otherwise he's not the Pharaoh. And because he leaves his cattle out, his cattle will be destroyed and his wealth will be destroyed. And that's the moment where the world and Mitzrayim understand that it's over. And next week's parsha will be how justice gets done. Now, just to conclude this, right? We're living in such a time. Um, we saw this as a pattern. And the entire world got together at Evian in 1938. And they had a conference to solve the refugee crisis. Did you read about this? Roosevelt calls the conference because he was getting a lot of pressure. What do you do about all the refugees? Now, everybody understood this was a euphemism for the Jews. Everybody understood the Jews of Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia have to get out. And nobody wants to take them. So they have a conference. What are we going to do about this problem? They don't call it the Jewish problem. They call it the refugee problem. And nobody wants to take refugees. Nobody. America, they've met their quota of 15,000, which is unbelievable. So they can't take any refugees because how are we going to manage Right? Canada doesn't take them. England doesn't take them. Nobody wants to take them. My favorite is Australia. You know what Australia says? You can't make this stuff up. If you go to Yad Vashem, there's an exhibit on this Evian conference, and you can see the minutes, or you can look them up online. Australia says we don't have anti-Semitism in Australia, and we don't want to spread anti-Semitism in the world. If we take Jews, we're going to have anti-Semitism. Unbelievable. The world just watches. Will there be justice in the world? Will there be justice? 1940. Because of the conference of Evian, Hitler decides to do an experiment. It's called Kristallnacht. What's the world going to do? He keeps pushing the envelope. He says, we're going to unleash a a storm, a firestorm in Germany and Austria. And, And for three days, they pillage and loot and burn. The police are all out. You know why the police are out? They're there to make sure the fire doesn't spread to any German businesses. But they don't do anything to stop the fires. And you have to understand, to us this is logical, they're Nazis. But if you're living in 1938, you still think you're living in a democracy. You still think you're living in civilization. You're in Germany. This is the home of Beethoven and Bach and and Hegel. I mean, it's unbelievable. This can't be. Jews fought in World War I. Nothing. And Hitler then realizes He's going to have to solve this problem on his own. Hitler originally does not want to destroy all the Jews. He just wants to get them out of Germany. He wants a Germany that is Judenrein. And he understands the only way he's going to do that if he gets rid of them. So they have a conference in Wannsee. Wannsee is a suburb of Berlin. You can still visit this place. And it's put together by um, Eichmann and uh, Himmler. And that's where the infamous proposal for the final solution to the Jewish problem is presented. That's where it happens. Will there be justice that is done? (coughs) Nuremberg was a step in the right direction. But the overwhelming majority, I think the estimate is 99%, 98.3% of Nazis died peacefully in their beds of old age. Justice was not done. Now we're sitting here today and everybody assumes that the goal is to just destroy Hamas so that Hamas is not a a military threat in Aza. And that's a practically correct goal. 
But we're not done yet. Because if justice isn't done, if there isn't din, then the world learns nothing. And that's a challenge. How do we do that? That is the question. And that's the question that's raised in Parshat Ve'era. And we'll have to wait for the answer until we get to Parshat Bo. So that's a little bit of food for thought. There's a lot more to talk about. But we're going to pause here.